And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, we are back with the Monday Mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. We were off because of the 4th of July a week ago, but Ken Rosenthal is here along with myself, Tim McMaster. We are answering your questions. Uh, It's a fun time in baseball. We're after the 4th of July. The All-Star Game is coming up very quick, and then right after that, we're going to have the trade deadline. We have questions related to both of those things. Ken, how has your week been and your week off from this podcast? It's been very good, Tim. Ready to go. Yeah, Red Aaron to go, and you were in Beantown this weekend, Red Sox-Yankees. That was an exciting series. Uh, Obviously, one more to play as we record this on Sunday. Uh, Jeter getting the winning run on Saturday night. I know that brought joy to Red Sox fans, a guy named Jeter doing something against the Yankees. But we're going to start by not talking about those two teams that we're used to contending, but a few teams that are in the midst of postseason droughts, but are getting themselves off the mat. At least it seems like it. Um, the Phillies are in the third wild card spot in the National League. The Mariners and the Orioles. That's right. The Orioles have both won seven games in a row heading into Sunday action. Ken, this is what makes baseball fun when these teams are interesting. Absolutely, Tim. It's the thing I love most about the sport, the element of surprise. Here we are almost at the all-star break. And these three teams are right in the thick of it, where for various reasons, we wouldn't have anticipated that at various points this season. The Phillies certainly were struggling at one point. The Mariners were as well. The Orioles were not expected to make any noise whatsoever. So let's take them one by one and let's start with the Phillies. Their fans have been clamoring for me to come clean, issue my mea culpa, Not a day goes by when they win that I don't get at least five tweets from fans saying, Ken, let's go. All right. You've got me. 22 and 29 under Girardi. 24 and 10 under Thompson. I was indeed the author of a column that was headlined, Firing Joe Girardi Wouldn't Fix the Phillies' Problems. Well, I must say, it certainly seems to have helped. Now, I still have concerns about the defense about the bullpen, even though the bullpen's been much better under Thompson. They seem to be just in a better place. He's running the bullpen better than Girardi was. All of that. I'm not ready to sit here and write that that column was wrong because I want to see it happen over the full season. Okay, but at the same time, clearly this change was beneficial. And John Smoltz, my colleague at Fox, when we had them on the air a few weeks back, was saying, I still think this is a playoff team. Those were John's words. I disagreed. I didn't see it at all, but right now, they are looking great, and hey, they are doing this without Bryce Harper. Nine and four without Harper going into Sunday. Derek Hall's come up. They're getting contributions from everywhere, and it's just really impressive to see them come together, and keep in mind, Castellanos has not gotten hot. 
it is a mystery that he has not hit yet. I cannot believe he's not going to hit all season. So from that perspective alone, that should help. Bryce hopefully comes back at some point. They're a really interesting club right now. Probably will get better at the deadline as well. David Dombrowski, as the head of baseball operations, is not one that stands pat. So while I am not issuing the full-blown mea culpa that will come after they make the playoffs, if they do, in print, because that's what I do, actually, as opposed to the people on Twitter who rip me and never admit when they're wrong, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it in print in The Athletic. But not yet. I will say, though, on this podcast, hey, great job by the Phillies, and the change certainly seems to have had a great effect. Now, the Mariners are another team I wrote about at one point, and I was wondering what the heck is going on with them. But they've won seven straight, entering Sunday over Oakland, San Diego, and Toronto, good opponents. They have had their share of injuries. Hanniger is still out, expected around the All-Star break, maybe shortly thereafter. Kyle Lewis, same. So they should get to be even stronger as they go forward here. They've had a good run even when they were without Ty France. They are one game back entering Sunday in the race for the third and final wildcard spot right behind the Blue Jays, who they are playing this weekend in front of big crowds, as they always get in Seattle with people coming from over the border. You get a split crowd, but it's been great, great atmosphere. They're 10-1 with Carlos Santana. I'm not sure that's made a difference. It did Saturday night. He had the game-winning homer. But... Hey, they are a team under Jerry DePoto that stays aggressive, and that move for Santana was a desperation move at the time. They needed a body to fill in for France, but hey, give them credit. It's worked out really well. Their bullpen's been excellent. Munoz, who came over in the NOLA trade, remember, that's the one that brought them tie France. Diego Castillo's been really good. So kudos to the Mariners. They've won 15 of 18, six straight series. Very impressive run. And finally, the Orioles. Now, this is a team that I also hear from fans often about because they still think after leaving Baltimore 13 years ago and not working for the paper for 22 years that I still hate their team. Not true. Not only is it not true, I still have relatives in Baltimore. I still have a lot of friends in Baltimore. And it has pained me over the years to see the park empty. Because when I worked for the Sun, those first, I don't know, seven or eight years when Camden Yards was open, that place was full every night. It was the place to be. And over the weekend, they've had some promotions granted, but they had 27,000 Friday night, 37,000 Saturday night. And they are entering Sunday, one of the hottest teams on the planet, seven straight wins. And they have not done that since August of 2017, not really since the rebuild started, of course. Three and a half out of the final wild card spot. Three and a half. And this is a team I wrote about last week a little bit with their bullpen. Mostly waiver claims, guys who are picked up one way or the other. And yet they all are pitchers who at one point were considered guys with pedigree. And they've all performed extremely well. Jorge Lopez blew a couple, but he came back three straight saves entering Sunday. And it's just been overall a really nice run. They're a little ahead of schedule maybe, at least based on what we've seen lately. And just as it's important to note what the Phillies have done without Bryce Harper... What the Orioles have done with Adley Rushman, their top prospect, the catcher, is equally notable. They were 16-24 and 24 when he joined the team, made his Major League debut. They're 26-20 and 20 since. Now, it's a team game. It's never just one player. And they have gotten contributions from virtually everyone. Mullins is getting hot again. Montcastle and Hayes have been pretty good all year. But 
At the same time, Rushman has this presence about him. Stabilized the staff. Just overall, a really impressive start to his career, even if the numbers have not totally been there. Now, what's interesting to see with them also is they've got more coming from the farm. And they've got some interesting questions coming up at the deadline. And we're going to tackle that as we start our mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. All right, if you want to get involved down the road, call us 646-543-7072, or you can email the baseball show at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. We've been doing this podcast for a season and a half, and the number of Orioles questions we've gotten is so small. But over the last two weeks, they have come out of the woodwork, including a voicemail. That's the one we are going to start with. Hey, this is Stuart Woods. Kent, we got to talk about the Baltimore Orioles. June was their first winning month in over five years. They had their first five-game win streak in over two years. The vibes are up in Baltimore. But for some reason, I hear different baseball people talking about guys like Cedric Mullins and Trey Mancini being on the trading block, like these are pieces Baltimore wants to move. Why is that? Why would the Orioles not hold on to these guys? Because it looks like the rebuild's actually working. And second question, and you can call me crazy for the second one, but should the Orioles actually be buyers at the trade deadline? Fangraphs has them at a 16, 17% chance to make the playoffs. But come on, Ken, believe in Baltimore with me here. Appreciate it. Love the show. Well, Stuart, thanks for the question. And Fangraphs has them at 1% entering Sunday. That's to make the playoffs, 1%. And this is why they are going to sell certain pieces. And Mancini, potential free agent, a guy who is kind of a duplication of Malcastle, is probably going to go much as it bothers everyone to even think about that because he's been such a fan favorite, such a great story, and really the face of this whole thing for a few years now while they've struggled. But they're probably going to trade him. They probably will trade a reliever or two if they get the value they want. But to your point, in my opinion, there is value in a team learning how to win, in a team building momentum, in a team exciting its fan base. There is value in all of that. And everyone says, well, the Orioles have no chance this year. That's probably true. They play in a ridiculously difficult division. They're not there yet. We all know that. But the atmosphere in the ballpark the last few nights, just the winning vibe that people are experiencing. There's a buzz in town. I know this from talking to people in town. That's something that you don't want to kill. So maybe the solution here is not just to sell pieces, but to acquire some pieces. And they can do both because they have a farm system that is much more highly regarded now than it was, I don't know, five years ago before this all started. They've got the number one pick again this year. They're not going to trade the number one pick, but again, they'll be in a strong position drafting in the first spot in each round to bolster that farm system yet again and more. So I would suggest, or hope, I guess, is even the better word, that they would not just simply keep trading veterans because they're building up for the future. The future is coming. And at some point, this rebuilding, tanking, whatever you want to call it, it's got to stop. And you've got to try to win more games. Now, no one's expecting them to be unrealistic and say, okay, we're holding everybody. We're holding Mancini. We're holding all the relievers. That's not 
good baseball sense. If you can get value for these guys, you do it, especially with relievers. They're so volatile. Mancini, potential free agent. You don't want to sign him because you consider him a duplication. I get it. That's all fine. But how about adding two? That's my point. Last week on the Roundtable show on Wednesday, Mark Craig brought up the point that with the extra wildcard spot, it kind of opens teams up to be buyers and sellers at the same time. And the Orioles are a team that that makes a whole lot of sense for. And we'll see how many teams take that approach where, all right, there's pieces we need to get rid of because their deals are coming up and it just makes sense. But we could also bring some stuff in at the same time. Um, All right, you mentioned the ridiculously difficult American League East. We're going to stay right there with Veronica. She says... Hope you're doing well, and I absolutely love the show. I wanted to reach out with a question about the Blue Jays, who seem to be struggling in an even tougher AL East division with all five teams being highly competitive. So my question is, while the Blue, why the Blue Jays haven't addressed their glaring problems yet? The Jays fans have known that the bullpen needs at least one to two swing and miss relievers, but GM Ross Atkins said signing Sergio Romo will complete the bullpen, which is really confusing from a fan's point of view. As fans, we're worried that the front office is being complacent with the Yankees being so dominant and the Red Sox and the Rays surging, I understand that the trade deadline is not until August, but I was wondering why the Jays' front office doesn't seem to be in a rush to address the issues that they see, mainly both starting and relief pitching. Well, Veronica, I understand where your question's coming from because if you remember last year, they traded for Adam Simber on June 29th and Trevor Richards, that was the Rowdy Telez deal, that was July 6th, though. Those dates have passed, and they made two deals then. Now, it does take two teams to tango, right? And the momentum for trades doesn't really seem to pick up now until after the All-Star game, after the draft. Pushing back the draft has affected the dynamic. It's not that front offices can't do two things at once, but it certainly adds to the volume that they're dealing with at any given time. It is clear the Jays need relief help. I didn't see that comment that you mentioned regarding Sergio Romo from Ross Atkins. I don't believe that to be true, even if he said it. They cannot be done adding to their bullpen. But I will say this. They've got a hit. And this is one of those teams, like the Phillies somewhat, they are an offensive team with some really good pitching too, especially in the rotation and some back-end pieces. But when they don't hit, it doesn't look as good, right? I guess every team is in that category. So that's got to happen. And it's been kind of an issue at various points this season. But I do expect them to be active. In fact, if I recall correctly, Jason Stark, in his What We Learned in June column, identified the Blue Jays, after talking to executives, as the team expected to be the most active. So I do think they're going to do things. It's probably market forces, just the nature of the way trade talks are going, that is the reason why they haven't done anything just yet. All right, one more trade deadline question this week. It's from Doug. He says, reports say that rather than pay in top prospects, the Mets are willing to take back a bad contract at the trade deadline to get the pieces that they need. If this is their strategy and their needs are late inning relief, power, and starting depth, what are some potential trade partners for them, teams that have onerous contracts they'd like to unload, and talent that would meet the Mets' needs? You know what's interesting here? There aren't as many bad contracts as there used to be. But I'll give you some names. I'll start with the San Diego Padres because that is a team that does have a couple of bad contracts. Hosmer is one, and of course the Mets were heavily involved for him right before the season started, ultimately backed away from that deal. Probably the right thing. Even though Hosmer got off to a hot start, he's kind of back to where he was. 
Dom Smith, still a guy I like. I know fans are kind of mixed on him, and the Mets are kind of mixed on him. They are still intrigued, so that was one of those deals that was probably best it didn't happen. The other guy with some money left is Blake Snell. And the Padres have six starters and almost, you can say, seven if you count Nick Martinez. They need to do some things to improve their offense. And Blake Snell is a guy making $13.1 million this year, $16.6 million next year, pitching better of late. So I could see him going somewhere. I don't know if it's the Mets, but he's the kind of guy that you're asking about. Another guy who has pitched better of late, a lot of money left, Madison Bumgarner. Now, he's earning $23 million this year, $23 million next year, and then $14 million the year after. So he's got $37 million coming after this year. It's funny. We think of him as old. He's 32. He's not what he used to be, but he's 32. So will some team look at that and say, hmm, that's an interesting guy for us? Perhaps. When it comes to some of the hitters that are out there, most of them are kind of in the same price category. Mancini is making $7.5 million this year. Josh Bell's making ten. Wilson Contreras making nine point six. Joey Gallo, who I don't expect to go to the Mets, making ten. David Peralta from the Diamondbacks, seven and a half. Those numbers, I just read them, but really the number that they'll be owed at the deadline is one third approximately of what I just said. So those aren't onerous numbers for the Mets or anyone else. I'll give you a couple other starting pitchers. There really aren't any relievers that I thought of that came to mind. Because, of course, you want not just a high-salary guy. You want someone who's performing well. And I'm not sure. I'm sure there's somebody out there. But none especially came to mind. But two other starters. Kyle Hendricks would be one. He's got to get healthy. Making $14 million this year, 14 next year. And Lance Lynn, I don't expect the White Sox to sell. But the White Sox have been extremely disappointing. And heaven forbid in the next 20 days or 22 days or whatever it is, They don't catch fire, and they just look like they're stagnant, even in that weak division. Maybe they'll listen on Lance Lynn. I don't expect it, but he's making a good amount of money, too. So the overall theme here is, while the Mets do want to take on bad contracts, it's not as if the sport is littered with them as it once was. Teams have gotten smarter, and yes, there are some bad contracts out there. We can all name them, but if the player isn't performing, you don't really want the contract to begin with. That's a tough part of the bad. It's a bad contract because the player isn't necessarily playing very well. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, All right. The other big thing coming up in baseball other than the trade deadline is, of course, the All-Star game, which is about two weeks away. And Will says 
As someone who has been around MLB clubhouses for a long time, Ken, what is your sense of players' attitudes about being selected for the All-Star game for veteran players who have been many times, like Verlander, Trout, Goldschmidt, is it viewed as more of a burden than an honor? It seems obvious that for breakthrough players who have never been selected before, it's exciting and rewarding. But I wonder if some older, consistently elite players question whether the trade-off of sacrificing the four off days is worth it. Some do think that. I'm sure they wouldn't really admit it. But most of them, and I'm speaking generally because it's a general question, but I would say most players, the vast majority of players, still consider it an extreme honor no matter how much they've accomplished in their career. Albert Pujols is really excited to go. I know that. I would imagine Mickey Cabrera is too. And they'd be going as the legend players. We've talked about that. So it's still an honor. And while they are kind of run ragged during the All-Star festivities, they are all over the place. Media responsibilities, all different things. And it can't be exhausting. I know you're out there thinking, oh, too bad for these guys. But I've seen it in action. It's not easy. It is their break. And it's not a break at all. But I do think most players enjoy being around each other, too. Great players like to talk to great players. And they're in the same clubhouse. It's a cool atmosphere. This year, especially with it being at Dodger Stadium, we have a number of players from California, right? Southern California. Garrett Cole is one of them. I interviewed him for Fox yesterday. He's really excited to potentially go home to pitch in the All-Star game. So for the overwhelming majority, I would say, I said vast majority earlier, I'll change it to overwhelming majority. It's still a big honor. It's still something that's really exciting, something that they want to do. And, you know, you said all the responsibilities, which is it is. It is just nonstop for these guys. But once they get to the game now, at least it's not like a full game. It doesn't count anymore. So they can have fun during the game, which is. is and they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. OK, we got one more all star question. It comes via the voicemail. Ken, this is Noah Cashel from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, giving you a call. As we're approaching the all star game as a, con- a conventional, unconventional question, what do you remember about All-Star games growing up? And then do you have a favorite All-Star game that you've covered with Fox? Now, the first one I remember watching when I was a kid was in 2001. It was Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken Jr.'s last game. It was the game in Seattle. Um, the position switch, if we remember, with Cal Ripken and Alex Rodriguez and Joe Torre uh, sticks out in my mind like a sore thumb. And then I had the opportunity to attend the one in Pittsburgh um, in 2006. So I just wanted to know what your memories are. Noah, I love the question, but you made the mistake of asking an old guy for his memories. Now, I actually have a lot of great all-star memories, and I'll give you my first. It would be 1982, and I was 20 years old then, and the game was in Montreal, and I was in college, and I was, as a younger person, pretty savvy about getting tickets to events. That was one of my few skills, and still is, I guess. So... My dad said to me, you get two tickets for the All-Star game, I'll take you to the All-Star game. He never thought I would do it. I did it. We went to the game. It was a blast. That's the first memory I have. Then my first All-Star game was 1987 as a journalist, as a baseball writer. That was in Oakland. I remember that one. Also, 1993 sticks out for me because that was at Camden Yards when I was working for the Baltimore Sun. The ballpark was still new. It was very exciting. And that was one of the most unusual All-Star games ever played because the American League won the game and was booed off the field. And the reason that happened is because the Toronto Blue Jays were highly represented in that game. They were the defending world champions, 
And the Orioles were really good then. And the perception in Baltimore, I thought accurate, was that the Jays had stacked it. Cito Gaston had stacked the rosters. And then the Orioles were shortchanged. So that was the atmosphere going in. And then in the ninth inning, Mike Messina warmed up on his own. He was not asked to warm up. Mike Messina was still a young pitcher with the Orioles, but he was great already, future Hall of Famer. Warms up on his own. The crowd is in a frenzy, hoping Messina comes in. He never comes in. And that is why the American League got booed off the field. It was a big controversy for a couple of days. Totally harmless. It was silly. But I loved it. It was so much fun. I know Cito hated it, and he hated it <laughs> to this day. But it was one of those things. I mean, all the stuff we cover that actually has negative connotations and ramifications. This was whatever. They didn't pitch Messina in the All-Star game. So that was a good one. 1994 is another one. If you remember, Tony Gwynn scored from first base on a Moises Alou double in extra innings. I believe it was off Lee Smith. And the reason I remember it is because my friend, the late Jerry Fraley of the Dallas Morning News, was in a frenzy because Pudge Rodriguez did not block the plate. And he was kind of just screaming in the press box about that. Now, as for Fox, I'm trying not to ramble too much here. My favorite one for Fox was 2013 at City Field. It was the game in which Mariano Rivera, we all knew he was retiring. He took the field alone, if you remember, for the eighth inning. Jim Leland pitched him in the eighth inning because he didn't want to risk that there would be no bottom of the ninth. So Rivera takes the field, and I had the absolute privilege of interviewing him afterward. It was one of my favorite interviews of all time, and it was just a really special moment. So I've got a lot of all-star memories. Thanks for asking. Didn't ask me, but I'll throw one in for you too, Ken. Um, Not from my days covering all-star games, but before that, 1999, I was just out of college at that point, but that was the one at Fenway with Ted Williams on the field. Pedro lighting things up in front of the Red Sox fans, striking out the side. And I think Pedro got the MVP of that, despite only pitching like the first two innings, obviously. But um, that one stands out to me uh, more than any of the ones I was actually at when I was working for Major League Baseball. Of the coverage, the thing that stands out to me the most, Ken, and I don't know how much you remember this, was Todd Frazier running, winning the home run derby in Cincinnati on the walk-off. That well, actually yeah. was was like home run derbies are not my favorite thing, but that one was a blast. And they were forced to change the rules because of the weather, and it made it the it it reinvented the uh, the home run derby, and they've kind of kept to those rules. So there's there's a couple for me, uh, Noah, ones. but great question. Um, all right, next question comes from Blake. He says, "Are we alienating casual baseball fans by rubbing their noses in advanced analytics and telling them that old school stats like batting average and pitching wins no longer matter?" I get a sense that my casual baseball friends, they feel aren't smart enough to follow baseball anymore. That's a very fair question, and it hurts me even to think that fans might think that that oh my gosh, I can't keep up with these numbers. It's it's beyond my comprehension or beyond what I want to deal with more like that I'm sure everybody can comprehend this stuff so it's a delicate balance and I can tell you we've had a lot of talks at Fox over the years about this about how far to go with advanced analytics because when you do that and we have an audience mostly of casual fans it's a national audience now the fans of each team might be watching but we have to be aware that it's a national audience and some people who will be watching are not in tune with everything each team might be doing. So 
it was a few years ago where we adopted OPS. And for us at that time, that was kind of a big deal. Now, I know that more analytically fluent out there are probably laughing and snickering and saying, oh, great, good job, guys, OPS, when you can do WRC plus and all this. I, I get it. But on the broadcast, it's a fine line between too much and satisfying the fans who want some of that information. So we've tried to strike a balance. I would say the analytically minded would not feel that we are advanced enough in this regard. And maybe some casual fans would say even what we do is too much. Exit velocity, all of these things. I've always felt the beauty of the sport is that it appeals to so many different people in so many different ways. You don't have to be an expert on sabermetrics to love baseball. You don't have to be someone who even roots for a team to love baseball. You can simply enjoy fantasy baseball if that's what you want. There are all kinds of ways. So I always believe that the umbrella should be as large as possible, that people should be into the sport in the only way that they want to be, and that's that. And I would hope that no one gets alienated. And for a long time, and people might not remember this, but it was the analytics group or those fans that were feeling alienated from the sport because they were looked down on. And for a long time, they shouted very loudly because their voices were not heard. And now their voices are heard. It's much better. So there's room for everyone. I guess that's my overriding point. Yeah. And I think for those, you, you're right. And you don't have to pay attention to that stuff. But I think that if you just give that stuff a chance, it helps you understand yes. where the sport is now. And it can help you. And I think that's not just baseball. Like if you watch the NBA now and you realize that, oh my gosh, why do these guys just shoot three pointers nonstop, even on fast breaks? If you understand that it's analytics and they figured out that mathematically that makes more sense, like it lets you understand the game more and the same with football. So I think it, you're right, Ken. It, it's a sliding scale. You can get into it as much as you can, but the more you get into that stuff, I think it does allow you to understand where front offices and managers are coming from with the decision. Tim, I'm glad you say this because that is the absolute truth. And when players are evaluated, for instance, on the basis of exit velocity, well, guess what? Exit velocity matters. We should talk about exit velocity. We should understand that if a hitter is in a slump, but he's hitting the ball hard, the way teams look at that now is, okay, maybe his batting average is down, maybe his slug is down, but the signs are good. The underlying stuff is good. That does enhance our understanding, and really that's all this stuff is about. All analytics is about is learning more about a game that is an eternal mystery. Even supposed experts like myself are wrong all the time. GMs make mistakes all the time. Players look bad. The sport is so humbling in that sense. That's why I get a little annoyed with the social media know-it-allness. Stop it. This game humbles everyone who touches it. And that's the beauty of it. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs. 
And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, a couple more questions. Andrew says, hey, Ken, Tim, longtime reader of your work, Ken. Thrilled to have stumbled upon this podcast during the lockout. Aaron Judge, as of the end of Wednesday, June 29th, this one has been where we've been holding this one, had 433 balls incorrectly called strikes in his career, the most during his time in the big leagues. My question is, Judge being one of the biggest hitters in the league, does this go the other way, and does Jose Altuve get the most strikes incorrectly called balls? Follow-up to this, assuming robo-umps are on their way, would this be calibrated to each player, or would the league standardize a strike zone, no matter who is in the box? The robo-umps would be calibrated to each player. That's absolutely necessary. Now, a couple things on this. One funny thing I can relate. We're talking to Aaron Boone yesterday. We had a meeting with him, as we do with each manager, as a broadcast team before the broadcast. We ask a few questions. It takes about 10, 15 minutes. Just get updated. And the shirt Aaron Boone was wearing said, Aaron Judge, he's six, I'll say bleeping, seven, <laughs> meaning six foot seven. And I thought the shirt was hysterical. I know what it was a reference to. It was a reference to the fact that umpires do not always take into account Aaron Judge's size when they are calling balls and strikes. And I looked it up. Indeed, according to StatCast, the most strikes out of the zone called called strikes on pitches out of the zone since 2017, Aaron Judge is the leader by far. Actually, not by far, but he is the leader and it's the pitches down that form the vast majority of the missed calls. You asked about Altuve being someone who gets maybe more balls in the zone called balls because he's small. That doesn't happen. He's not highly ranked in that regard. I looked that up too. The guy with the most balls called on pitches in the zone since 2017 is Carlos Santana, guy with a good eye. And the top five, six players on this list were all either players with big names who might get favorable judgments, or players who had really good plate discipline. It was Carlos Santana, Reese Hoskins, Bellinger, Mike Trout, Andrew McCutcheon, Anthony Rizzo, and that was the top group there. Jose Ramirez and George Springer were next. So it's an interesting question, and 
just as the t-shirt said, Aaron Judge, he's six, seven. All right, one last question. This one's from voicemail. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name's Trent from Florida, lifelong Cleveland Indians, and now Guardians fan. I was just calling on day of July 5th. Um, wondering if Major League Baseball ever doing anything to give more recognition to uh, Larry Doby, the first player to break the uh, color barrier in the American League. Just seems like he never gets the uh, recognition or publicity that Jackie Robinson got, also well-deserved. But it'd be nice if even the Cleveland Guardians could just wear the number 14 on July 5th uh, going forward, just to make a little better case for Larry Doby, who was also a great baseball player. So I wondered if Ken had any comments on that or if the league was ever looking to do anything more. It seems it pretty much only gets promote, promoted by a couple national sports writers here and there on July 5th and, you know, by the Cleveland Guardians Club. Trent, glad you asked. And there's a terrific article that Anthony Kastrovitz of MLB.com wrote recently on Doby. And while, yes, Jackie Robinson was the first, Larry Doby was only 11 weeks behind in 1947, and he jumped straight from the Negro Leagues to Major League Baseball. Jackie didn't do that. Jackie, if you remember, had a year in the minors and then joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. But Doby, signed by Bill Veck, the late, great Bill Veck, he went right to the majors. So that was a different kind of challenge than even Jackie faced. And Larry Doby had a terrific career. Last World Series, the Guardians won when they were the Indians. He was 7-4-22. He played a big role. He was a guy who made seven straight All-Star teams from 1949 to 55. And I agree. I would like to see him acknowledged in a greater way. We all know who he was and... You're right. There are a few articles written every year about him. Anthony's might have been the best that I've seen on MLB.com. But his journey was different than Jackie Robinson's, and in some ways more difficult. He didn't have that year in the minors. He went right away to the big leagues. So it would behoove baseball, in my opinion, to do a little bit more. And I'm not saying MLB does nothing. I get it. I don't want any emails coming from the New York offices. But <laughs> could you do a little bit more? Yeah, I think I think the team and the league probably could. All right, great questions again this week. Uh, we had a ton of them, so I've saved some because we had the, the week off. So we'll get to more of them as the next couple of weeks go by. Uh, if you want to get more questions in, we love it. 646-543-7072. You can call us or email the show at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next up on the feed, Starkville on Tuesday. It's going to be a good one. Terry Francona returns to the show I think it's his third time in Starkville, so that'll be a good one. And then, of course, we're with you all week long. The Roundtable Show on Wednesday with Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and Mark Carrig. Thursday's the 3-0 Show with Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Bridge Giroli. And then DVR is back on Fridays with Keith Law. Of course, the draft is only a couple of weeks away as well, so that's a great one to get you ready for draft day. You can join The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months right now. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, next weekend we're heading into the All-Star break, but where are you at? Good question, Tim. I've got Yankees Red Sox at Yankee Stadium Saturday night. Sunday morning I am flying right to L.A. for the All-Star festivities. And then we have a game, I believe it's Giants and Dodgers, the following Saturday coming right out of the break. So I'll stay in L.A. the whole week. But really looking forward to the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium. I know Fox has a lot of big things planned. I know Major League Baseball has a lot of big things planned. And generally speaking, on these big events, they're done pretty well. So it should be really exciting. 
Yeah, in that ballpark, a little history. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, have a great weekend. You too, Tim. All right, and everybody else, too. We'll talk to you again soon.